This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 235 tonight. Uh, we are joined by our guest, Sanjana Singh, and uh, she is a philosopher and the host of the podcast, The Naked Dialogue, which you can find on all platforms, Spotify, Apple. I have the links down below. Go check out her website. Um, it's a great podcast. She's had amazing guests. She's had some crossover guests that we've had on the show and uh, just lots of interesting minds and philosophers and scientists and stuff. So I really recommend her podcast. So go check that out. Uh, before we get started tonight, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast for just $2 a month. You'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. Um, we've got tons of amazing stuff on there. Stuff with Randall Carlson, Rick Strassman, Laird Scranton. There's a bunch of stuff on there. So go check that out. We're also in Discord. So come chat with us on Discord. Um, if you are interested in mind escape t-shirt, uh, here's a bunch of different logos that I've, and, um, uh, images I've created for our, ma- our merch store. So go check that out. I have the link down below. Click on our link tree. It's got all of our links on there and head on over to indrasweb.org. It is live. So, uh, sign up for a profile today, start speculating, hypothesizing, theorizing, and all those amazing things. It is not in the App Store yet. We are working on that. And we are going to do this one more month. Uh, we are going to give away uh, these Mind Escape podcast uh, t-shirts. We have larges and mediums left. Um, I'm going to announce the winner from last month on our next episode, which I think might be this weekend or early next week. Anyways, I will announce the winner on the next episode, and we will get that out to you, whoever that may be. Uh, also... Um, yeah, I think that's we've covered pretty much everything. Oh, and uh, I want to give everybody uh, a round of uh, thanks to all of our friends, family, everybody that gave us support. Uh, we released our trailer for our documentary, and we've got amazing feedback on it. So thank you so much. And um, we're adding a few more people into the documentary as well. Um, so we're really excited about that. And um, 
yeah, I think it's going to be a really uh, interesting take on the subjects. So, uh, but welcome on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Uh, so yeah, I told you we would get you on the show. It's been a little bit, but uh, I was on your podcast. So I, was, I think I was one of the first 10 guests. Um, and I was honored to be on your show. And then now looking at all the amazing guests that you have on, I feel even more honored. They're probably like, who's this weirdo in there with all these amazing scientists? So, No, I'm honored to be on your podcast as well. Well, we appreciate it. Um, so you're a philosopher. I would call you a philosopher for sure. I see your tweets and your takes on things. And uh, you're also a podcaster. So those are two of our favorite things. Um, what got you into philosophy? When did you get into philosophy and what got you into philosophy? So in 2018, I went to Tel Aviv to get my undergraduate degree in liberal arts. And I had like six options out of which I also chose philosophy as a basic track. Um, and so in 2018, you know, they, there was an introductory um, philosophy class. And I was like, wow, this is interesting. They were talking about Immanuel Kant. They were talking about David Hume, Spinoza, um, you know, all of these essential philosophers, John Locke. Um, and at that time, I was only a little bit interested, but not really. But I think I really, really got into philosophy back in 2020 during the pandemic. I started reading a lot. I started reading a bit about Nietzsche, like, a com you know, completely um, uh, all the knowledge that I could accumulate from Nietzsche. And then Schopenhauer, and then I read some of the German idealist philosophers. And then psychedelics also came into play. What is a philosophy of psychedelics? I mean, if you've got uh, Dr. Hugh on your podcast, Peter Hugh, um, you know, he had the book called Numenotics. And uh, in that one, also, he tries to, you know, basically take all of the philosophers who had taken intoxicating um, substances and created beautiful um, prose or poet or poetry or, um, you know, um, written pieces out of it. So, yeah, really, it started, um, you know, almost four years ago. Cool. Um, in terms of... Uh... So that kind of got you in the door, but like, where are you at now? Like, what are you studying? Who are you reading? Where, where's your, um, your current level of interest at with, you know, the whole philosophy, um, subject. So currently I've kind of shifted from philosophy to artificial intelligence because I feel like it is the future and we do need ethics around artificial intelligence and ethics is a huge component within philosophy. You either can look at Aristotle's uh, Nicomachean uh, ethics or you can just like look at the ethical value system of Nietzsche, um, you know, and, and that got me very much interested into as to how can we create artificial general intelligence, which is something that Oxford philosopher um, Nick Bostrom talks about in his book called Superintelligence. So I am currently studying artificial intelligence, some coding, computer science, so that I can you know, create these artificial general intelligence sentience. And by sentience, I don't mean that they're alive, just like sentience in the sense that they're aware. Um, that they have some sort of a consciousness that they can, 
use that to be intelligible. So um, that's something that I'm uh, moving towards these days. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, the whole AI thing, we've definitely broached the subject, but we haven't really gone deep. I mean, I'm familiar with a lot of different aspects of it, but um, in terms of, uh, yeah, it's something we haven't really talked about a ton. I'd like to talk about it more. Um, I mean, I guess one of the biggest questions would be, should do we you, be afraid? <laughs> do you think um, do you think AI will ever arise to the level of consciousness or um, I don't even want to say intelligence because I think they will be more intelligent. They already kind of are uh, in some regards. Obviously, it's somebody programming them. But um, do you think that they will become conscious as humans are conscious or do you think it'll be a different type of consciousness or because I my personal take is I don't think there's something that you can't recreate within the billions of years of evolution um, and the way that life is biological life has evolved that I don't think you will be able to replicate uh, in my opinion or at least there's I don't know it's hard I guess my take is we make mistakes but the mistakes we make also lead to different paths that I don't think you'll be able to recreate in AI. I mean, what's your take on that? So no, that's a brilliant question. Um, I don't think like Anil Sate would agree to this. He would say that, um, you know, you necessarily cannot uh, replicate sentience into an artificially intelligent system. Um, however, if you follow Nick Bostrom's super intelligence, we can't uh, like artificial intelligent sentience can um, surpass uh, human intelligence, but I don't think so, but I don't think they would be conscious. Now, one thing that keeps on um, puzzling me is that uh, in that Space Odyssey movie of 2001, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's a scene, uh, there's a scene when um, he's taking a HAL 2000's uh, thugs out. Right. And, 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 he, and, the, and the system is saying, oh, please do not you know, uh, take my plugs out. So there's some sort of a qualia there within a um, within an artificially intelligent system. So it makes you wonder as to if if we do get to a position which is uh, artificial general intelligence, would we be able to make them, um, you know, as intelligible that they have emotional reasoning, that they have emotional capacities to understand, to be effective? And if they are effective, um, can they be able to sense uh, what the other humans are feeling? Because if they can have phenomenological experience, they have qualia. So if they have qualia, then there, it is some sort of a conscious entity. However, I think um, I don't think that we can absolutely 100% rep- replicate consciousness into an artificial intelligence system. Um, and if does if that does happen, it would happen way, way, way in future. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just I don't know. I, I mean, uh, you can look at movies like. Uh, um machina yeah ex machina and uh, even that other guy's movie what's it called annihilation uh there's yeah. some weird stuff at the end especially that that alien stuff at, you know that happens at the end it's like whoa what's going on? it's almost like is that ai is that a biological alien like what's going on here um but um actually i think is that the same person that created the show devs too i think it is um that show devs on 
it was on FX. They only did one season and it's, it's unbelievable. It's about, I'm not going to give it away, but it's about them basically create or coming up with the algorithm for life, like being able to predict anything. Like there's a causal line, obviously determinism all the way kind of a thing. And they can yeah, direct devs. Yeah. They can predict, predict everything. So if any, nobody's watched devs yet, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, Alex Garland is his name. Yeah. I guess that that person doesn't do sequels or anything, so there's not going to be like a sequel to Ex Machina or Annihilation or No, it didn't need it, I don't think. Yeah. Um, no, but that's a super interesting um, topic. And I, I just I think that when I see these people like, um, um, you know, you look at you watch like Lex Friedman and he has all these computer scientists on or you watch um, – uh, who's the guy? He's got glasses and kind of like a goofy hat. Uh, he wears on everything. I don't know. I forget his name, but he's big in the AI uh, community. Um, and you look at all these people, and they're very interesting thinkers. They're very outside the box thinkers. They're very in tune with what consciousness is or could be, and things like that. Um, but uh, again, I think some of these people are very optimistic. Um, I just think that there's something so unique about humans that I don't think even though we want to replicate this thing or whatever it is, I don't know that we will. And I mean, even what's your take um, on you had Sarah Walker on and she's studying abiogenesis and the origins of life and uh, alien life and where does life originate and RNA and all that stuff. Um, do you, what do you think about that in terms of like, um, do you think life was created here? Do you think it's like a a mixture of things? Do you believe in panspermia? Like, where do you lie when it comes to that stuff? Where does your opinions, uh, align with when it comes to that? I had a brilliant conversation with, um, Sarah Walker. I think she's doing a brilliant job. Um, both as a theoretical physicist and astrobiologist. Um, I asked her questions which were so difficult for me to even fathom. Um, But when I think about alien life, um, uh, and and it takes me all the way back to Stephen Hawking and what he said about alien life, whether there could be alien entities out there. Um, And, you know, given the current scenario with the UAP, um, an unidentified aerial phenomena, um, and also the Pentagon in April of 2020 kind of revealing that there might be some sort of a UAP happening. um, I think, uh, you know, if we are able to discover what this alien life is, maybe we can buy the very aspect of comparison, right? So let's say I have um, a human here some sort of an alien life here and we're able to understand alien life by understanding humans and we're able to understand humans by understanding alien life you know that there could be a reactionary effect here and um i think i think it could definitely change the entire game of knowing what the human condition is but also what the universal um sentient condition is so it's definitely very very interesting to investigate or do an inquiry into um the human condition and origins of life yeah she made a great point which i've mentioned on our panspermia episode that we did a long time ago um 
so like even if you believe in panspermia or I think there's a lot of legitimacy to it, it still doesn't answer um, where life came from. It just kind of right. passes it off onto another, you know, um, it's basically like that's not our problem, you know, kind of a thing because uh, we, we will never if life didn't originate here and it came on some sort of asteroid or astral body or cosmic dust or whatever, um, we would never be able to figure out most likely where it came from. And if we did, it would be a long time, uh, you know, from where we are with space travel and stuff like that. So it just passes the question off on where does it originate. So that's why I don't think a lot of people love the panspermia. You have a lot of ego, obviously in science and there's a lot of scientism and, telling somebody that they'll never be able to figure something out, you know, like that. Um, I don't think sits well with too many scientists. That's why they push so hard for a biogenesis or whatever. When I, I think that panspermia is actually really valid. Uh, you know, if you look at meteorites and asteroids, you know, there's meteorites that contain the, the organic compounds needed to create life and things like that. So I don't know. Um, but so back to the AI the AI mixed with, let's mix this with the origin of life. Um, do you think that we are going to mix at some point? Like I know there's a lot of people that's like, oh, we're going to, you know, the Elon Musk, the um, Neuralink, or we're going to migrate with technology. But we already kind of are, right? I mean, everybody carries around their cell phone. Everybody's always got this computer in their hand or in their pocket or uh, whatever. So you're always attached to this thing already. Um, what do you think in terms of integrating it even more? Do you think that's something that we're going to do and, and integrate it into our biology? Or do you think that this is always going to be some external outlet thing? I think technology and technological advancement is inevitable. So we would become cyborgs at some point, especially given the factor that uh, Elon Musk is coming up with Neuralink. Um, and we're headed towards um, a, a reality where virtual reality and augmented reality is increasingly becoming a part of our own real, this world um, reality. So, you know, one could argue that there is transhumanism, which is a movement which could be coming uh, into place in future. Um, and when it comes to mixing life um, with our lives, our minds with technology, I think, you know, we all have double lives. The first life that we have is our, you know, immediate external environment, this life that we have right now, this space, this time. And the second life that we have is exists on this virtual space. So we all lead double lives. Um, and what's gonna potentially happen in future is that this second life that we're living is going to exponentially increase to a degree that the real life that we're in is only going to be physiologically important. Hmm. So if I'm, uh, let's say, uh, using a VR headset, you know, um, and I'm able to go into this other metaverse reality and be able to do all of these brilliant things that I could do with that technology. What happens to the physiology, right? In, in real time, in real space time. So if we go way into the future with the 
the technological advancements that, that are happening, one could say that, you know, we'll be, we, of course, we'll become cyborgs, but we'll be so immersed in the virtual reality that the actual reality that actually exists in space and time would only be a thing um, of concern for physiology. So and but also you know again another factor comes up the that we are medically also having advancements our longevity is going up and up and up like people are able to live up to eighty years ninety years mm-hmm. um, and and Neuralink is promising a lot of other things as well so you know there's brilliant technological advancements happening and I think we would be able to we will increasingly be able to simulate our own reality within the virtual space to an extent that maybe a real reality wouldn't um, make much more sense anymore because we already exist. We already exist. We have this Lacanian jouissance, if you may call that, within the virtual reality. So we are immersed into this virtual reality and it would grasp us. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Now... I don't know. I just think that from an evolutionary standpoint, too, if you think about it, if people really start integrating this into their minds or their brains or their biology, then and it gives them some sort of advantage, then from an evolution standpoint, you know, everybody's going to have to do it. You have to keep up. It's going to be competitive like everything else in life. Right. So unless you hit the head to the woods, (laughs) go back. Yeah. That's if they, they don't come for the woods and need the wood for something. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, no, I I mean, I think that like anything else in life, it's going to be competitive. So if people are going to integrate that, then at some point they're going to have the advantage uh, assuming that all the, the bugs and the kinks are worked out at that point. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's definitely an interesting conversation to have because I, even though I think that we are making these crazy advancements, you know, and it's, that's exponentially increasing each year, the, the technology and the advancements and everything. I still think we're really not as close as we think we are to creating, um, something that would pass the Turing test or, um, be indistinguishable from biological life. I think that that's still a ways away. I mean, I don't know. When, when do you, because was it Ray Kurzweil thinks, was it 2045, the, the timeline or whatever? So, I mean, yeah, you... there's a lot of AI pioneers, right? Like we got Nick Bostrom, we got Ray Kurzweil. Um, a lot of people take inspiration from Isaac Asimov as well. So, you know, we have so many people um, at hand when it comes to artificial intelligence, Marvin Minsky being one of them, too. Um, so, you know, um, we are uh, computer science and uh, the way artificial intelligence functions. I think we're headed towards a reality where we will, as I was saying before, be living double lives. Now, it depends as to what kind of ethics we'll have there, because ethics is uh, what is containing our community together. Like, you know, ethics is um, what I would call collectivistic value system and morality is what I would call individualistic um, value system. And so in order for a society to exist, 
we need uh, a, an ethical code. We need a communal ethical code. So when we are living these two double life, when we are living a double life, um, we do need ethics also in the virtual reality. So that's where the artificial intelligence ethics comes in, and sing the and singularity project. So it's very interesting to see how things are going there. What do you think when? Um, and I've heard some talk about this, and I thought it was a very interesting um, topic. Assuming that we do create these AIs that are super advanced and um, maybe not completely us, but getting there, um, would they be ha- able to have something like a psychedelic experience? You know what I'm saying? Like we have certain things associated with our consciousness that um, you can only experience through biology. So would there be a possibility? Would they download what it would be like, or would we have the neurons and the synapses mapped at that point with the H, you know, five HT two A receptors and the 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 play off of that? Like, would we understand that and and integrate that into, or like, you know what I'm saying, or would that not matter? Do you think to AI, would that not come into play at all? So I think if we do come to a place where we're able to have an artificially general intelligence system, we uh, the artificially general intelligence system would be able to at least sim- simulate exactly what a psychedelic experience is. And, and of course, it wouldn't have those uh, affective mechanisms of realizing what this experience is, but they could objectively simulate the experience and, uh, and see exactly what happens. So the objective side of the psychedelic experience would be present via simulation, but um, the subjective feelings would be absent because there's no biology in the body. Hmm. Absolutely. Um... So in terms of <clears throat> when you look at psychedelics, I know we've talked about, uh, you know, I think when I was on your podcast, we talked about psychedelics and you and I have talked about it a little bit um, off air too. Um, what do you, what, what excites you about psychedelics? Like what, is it the experiences still? Is it the, the mysteries? You know, is it people talking about the entities? What are the entities? Cause I know you're interested in the mind and how the mind works. I know that that fascinates me, um, the entities, but, uh, you know, is there something specifically right now that you are interested in or researching? So when I was like growing up, I would read these Eleusian mysteries um, because my father is very much into theology. So, you know, I was uh, reading all of those things. And years later, when I started to notice, okay, what is psychedelics? Like, I'm just trying to understand. Um, Then I realized that in the Eleusian mysteries, they were using this potion called Kaikon. Mm-hmm. And this Kaikon was, um, you know, this potion that could give you a psychedelic experience, a spiritual psychedelic experience. So that's uh, the first thing that came into my mind. And I was like, wow, that's that's a, that's a psychedelic. That's something um, that people have been using for ages. Same goes with Rig Veda, where, you know, Soma is considered as a um, psychedelic or, you know, an intoxicating uh, compound. Um, so my interest started with, I, I would say, history of exactly what psychedelics and where they came from. And then it shifted towards research as to what are the potential benefits. Um, then whenever I started having my own psychedelic uh, psychedelic 
uh, psychedelic experiences, I try to understand exactly the intrinsic value of it. So um, you know how uh, I would say lysergamines give you this geometric, objective kind of hallucinations, which tell you more mysteries about the external environment, while mushrooms, I would say, give you um, intrinsic value intrinsic systems, what is going on inside of you. So you go in with the mushrooms and you go out with the lysergamines. Um, now, I haven't experienced uh, mescaline or DMT yet, um, but I suppose they also have um, a, a good amount of uh, brilliant experience, phenomenologically speaking, um, you know, within them. Um, but I think my fascination with psychedelics started from history, then went on to research about what are the potential benefits and um, you know cons and then began my psychedelic journey of actually phenomenologically experiencing them and I found it to be so so helpful because um, I consider it as a medicine you know um, I, I would do a psychedelic once a year and um, just like a medicine you know go into a trip and have a good phenomenological experience and write down exactly what happened in that experience. And I, I try to, you know, create prose or poetry out of it because it encapsulates a lot of truth. Um, of course, you cannot read books on psychedelics because mm. of the hallucinations, but you can listen to lectures. You can listen to Terence McKenna's lectures. You can listen to all sorts of lectures. And while listening to all of these brilliant lectures, you can, you know, make all of these different connections in your head and then write it down. And as you write it down, it's pure creativity. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a brilliant, beautiful trips that I tend to take. And I see a lot of value in psychedelics, especially with healing too. I think it has helped with my anxiety and depression a lot. Um, so I do regard it, um, highly. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, you know, in terms of, um, you mentioned the Eleusinian mysteries. I don't even think people recognize my background is the Telesterion from, uh, Eleusis, which is where things were seen, things were drank, you know, that's where everything went down. The Telesterion is where everything went down during the Eleusinian mysteries. Um, and if that's what you're wondering, that's what my background is. Um, <clears throat> in terms of, uh, what you were talking about too, like the Soma and the Homa, um, obviously you live in India. Is there any sort of consensus of what Soma was? Cause we've had a couple X, we've we're been doing a, what is Soma series. We've only done two episodes. I have a couple more lined up, but we had one person on Chris Bennett, who's a cannabis historian. And he makes a very, very compelling case for cannabis and edible cannabis as uh, being what, you know, Soma, Soma. was and Homa, um, which is the Vesta um, version or the, uh, you know, you had the Indo-Iranian migrations and, you know, you have the Vedic culture who created the Vedas, as you mentioned, and then you have the people that created Zoroastrianism and um, Homa. Uh, which is their version of soma um so is there a consensus though on what soma actually was or is there still debate or i mean what's what's your take on that 
So I think I would say there's still debate. And also in India, you know, when, when it comes to psychedelics and, and uh, marijuana, there's usually a lot of taboo around these subjects. People don't like to discuss it because of how auspicious our religion is and how we would want to, um, you know, distinct, uh, distinctively put, put uh, religion here and um, drugs or psychedelics here. Um, but when it comes to investigating exactly what soma is, there's several debates. Some people think that it might have been a potion, so it could have been ayahuasca, it could have been uh, a tea brewed. Um, some people think it's wine, um, you know, it's made out of grapes. Um, and some other people think that it's mushrooms. So there's a bunch of theories about it, but I'm pretty sure it was a psychedelic. And this is, of course, my own personal opinion because we don't know for sure. Right. Um, but I think the way um, these descriptions are uh, of phenomenological experiences are described within Rig Veda of taking that Soma potion and what they, what they tend to have a mystical experience out of it, I think... Um, it makes a lot of sense that soma could have been a very uh, could have been a psychedelic, maybe even masculine. Who knows? You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've done a lot of research into it. I don't know. There's not a lot of cacti um, in that part of the world, um, and the phenethylamine, you know, experience is a little bit different than obviously the tryptamine uh, or even cannabis. Um, to your point about the the ayahuasca analog being soma, we did have Matthew Clark on who wrote the book Botanical Ecstasies, and that's his theory where he talks about Kush grass, which is prevalent in the area, and then all you need is Peganum uh, harmala, which would be the MAO inhibitor, um, and there's a lot of MAO inhibitors found in nature. Same thing with a lot of things found that have dimethyltryptamine. Um, so that would be the case that he makes. Um, that's actually an interesting book, the Botanical Ecstasies one. Uh, also, um, again, uh, Chris Bennett, the cannabis, uh, very compelling case. Uh, I think he said something, some cannabosum too, or something like that. Some sort of like um, the etymology of some of the words um, used and things like that in ancient times come into play. And uh, I know through those migrations too you get a lot of uh information uh based on language and linguistics and things like that um yeah i mean i, I guess we might not ever know unless somebody can find some sort of papyrus or scrolls or tablets or something you know um i know that they've found um in that region they've found a couple there's russian archaeologists that have found tapestry that shows two people holding a mushroom over a fire so that's one indication that maybe that's mushrooms and then you have again a lot of evidence for cannabis the the gold and the green descriptions from the uh, rig veda um how it was it was supposedly brought by traders to the region as well there's like a lot of things that align with it being cannabis and um, I guess uh, the origin of Soma and Homa is Sue and who and both of those mean to press it's like suppressing stocks so if you're you know anybody that's making edibles you would press the stocks of the cannabis um, so yeah there's different you know I guess you could do that with mushrooms though too but I wouldn't really consider that a stock um, I don't know very interesting stuff sorry if I'm boring everybody with the Soma. Oh, no, we're, we're riveted, baby. <laughs> um, 
But uh, yeah, no, I was just curious your take because I, I like to know, like, obviously you live in that area. Like, what do people, what are people saying? Do they even talk about it? Is it not a big deal at all? Is it a big deal kind of a thing? I like to know because uh, I think the West is fascinated with these things. But I think people that, like, as you mentioned, live in that area, maybe don't discuss it as much or it's like taboo, like you mentioned, because of drug laws or prohibition and stuff like that. So. Yeah, people don't usually discuss these things here in this country, and it's it's sad because they're missing out on so many, so many beautiful you know compounds that have so many intrinsic values. Um, I would say uh, you know you were talking about depictions of psychedelic use in different um, cultures. It reminded me of how in Scandinavia there's um, you know a lot of depictions of Santa Claus with mushrooms. And, you know, it's it's considered that maybe, uh, you know, it's an, it's an art where you can see the uh, Amanita muscaria kind of mushrooms there. So, you know, you can kind of conclude or, or you know, as, you know, take an assertion that, um, oh, this thing in front of me is, could have been Amanita muscaria. That means maybe people were using Amanita muscaria for a really good amount of time. But here in India, we have a huge culture for cannabis in the sense that it's, of course, illegal. But within uh, the northern India, the north part of India, and in the religion of Hinduism, we have this thing called Pong. Um, and this Pong is basically, um, uh, um, I would say, either a potion or, um, you know, or a smoked cigarette. Now, but mostly it's a potion um, and uh, it is prepared by the, I would call the pundits, the priests, and they take them and they're the worshippers of Shiva, the Lord Shiva. So uh, anyone, uh, I wouldn't say anyone, most of the priests who worship uh, Lord Shiva tend to engage in Pong, which is their spiritual enlightening phenomenological experience that they get out of cannabis. Um, so that's present here in India. But when you look at the overall picture of um, exactly what is the condition of psychedelics and psychedelic information here in India, it's quite taboo, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we were dealing with that for a while over here, and obviously uh, a lot of things have been suppressed, especially the, the cultivation of hemp. Now we're finding all these, well, we knew that there was multiple uses for it, and it's just a shame that uh, we haven't been able to bring that to fruition. So, so the other thing is, um, is that uh, when you look at, well, you mentioned Amanita, um, I mean, Amanita is a weird one to me because it's not really, um, it's not really a traditional psychedelic. I mean, obviously you would de decarb the Amanita. So it produces the muscimol, which would be the, the psychoactive compound that you would want. Um, but it's more of like a delirium or like a, um, I don't even, a hypnotic, I think is what you would probably classified as uh, a hypnotic probably similar to um what would i compare it to maybe blue Lo i've never done blue lotus but i would probably compare it to that for the effects that i've read of people and uh all that but yeah it's an it's an interesting one um makes you wonder do some people have different experiences than other people like based on their you know biology or gut biome or things like that i don't know but um, 
Yeah, I know that uh, that's a very bizarre one in terms of the effects. Um, when you look at, you, you mentioned there's this culture that, you know, it's illegal there, but people still partake in it. Um, do you think that, I mean, it's obviously been part of the culture for a long time. I remember just reading an article recently about, you know, the Alora Caves and how they used hemp as like the uh to preserve the wall like hemp lime and some other clay mixture and it's still standing to this day and it's still super preserved like do you think that's been part of your culture for a long time or do you think that uh it's been relatively i mean we can go back i think that's like 1500 uh bc if i'm not mistaken but like i mean how when you look at it do you think it's like something that's been a part of your culture forever or is this somewhat you know just in the the beginning of the ancient world or civilization i mean what do you where's where is your stance on that so i think it has been a part of our history for quite some time you know i was giving you the um example of shiva um and when it comes to hemp you know i was um two years ago i was in the northern region of india and it's called punjab state um and the city was patan uh, and in that city, I saw a lot of hemp, uh, you know, plants. And and I gathered that people do use hemp a lot in India for, you know, all, all sorts of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, however, when it comes to cannabis, I think it's way in the north. So there's another state called Uttarakhand um, and, uh, and another uh, region called Kashmir. And these are the two places where you can get... Um, cannabis illegally but uh, when there's a festival where there's a festival for the lord shiva you know you will see a lot of priests coming together and gathering together and partaking and taking pong which is the weed potion so i would say yes it has been a part of our um, history and given the fact that there's also the uh, mention of soma in rigveda um, so i would say yes it has been a part of our history um, uh, as we as we know it, I don't know. Most researchers try to say that it is psychedelics, but most religious, ultra orthodox religious people would say that it is not drugs because it's, they see psychedelics as drugs, um, and they are not educated much about uh, its potential effects. So yes, it has been a part of our history, um, but it is still taboo uh, amongst um, you know older generations. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, in terms of uh, when you look at, um, your, we talked about the history and you looked at, is there any sort of like drug reformation happening or is there some sort of thing happening where they're trying to change the laws or do you think it's still pretty conservative in that regards? I think it's still pretty conservative i think people are using you know change.org to petition against legalization of marijuana or decriminalization but i think it's going to take a good amount of time for india to actually reach that state however i know that for cancer patients and um i think only for cancer patients it's allowed to take our thc capsules um, a, a company has been producing that for a while. Um, and of course, it's prescription based. So I think India is going to take some time, a good amount of time to reach a place where, you know, these things can be legalized. Hmm. Interesting. 
Yeah, we thought it was going to be a lot faster here. Obviously, a lot of the states are making it legal, but still on a federal level, we're still waiting for that day. I mean, we grew up, though, like, where it was, like, very taboo. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, um, I remember, well, Maurice and I used to talk about all the time, like, this is never going to be legal. Like, we never thought cannabis would be, and now it's, now it's recreationally legal where we both live now, so... Um, it's kind of crazy. The times are a changing, but still, the federal yeah. the, to get that federal push is seeming to take forever. Yeah, I just um, I don't know. It makes you, I don't know. It makes you appreciate it. You know, all the the work that people have put in, and all the activism, and all the um, all the time. And there's people that have served tons of prison time, and there's people that are still in prison for like weed and stuff you know so when you look at all that um i have great respect for everybody that's kind of came before us and and done their part as as well as we've done our part too um i mean maurice and i have kind of always been a part of this kind of cannabis culture and um you know like the hippie and you know uh, jam band scenes and stuff like that so um but yeah i mean it's it's one of those things where I, I don't take it for granted. That's for sure. So, um, so I see you tweet a lot about Plato. I love Plato. He's my probably my top philosopher. Um, you were mentioning uh, morals and ethics earlier, um, and I have this kind of working hypothesis for a while now that like all metaphysics come from psychedelics and altered states of consciousness. Um, and specifically when you look at like Plato and Socrates, um, more, you know, I guess they're kind of the same person, but, um, uh, their take on like morals and ethics, it's almost like he came down from the Eleusinian mysteries or a mushroom trip or something. And was like, Oh, I'm going to get my life in order. These people should be doing this. These people should be doing this. Let's all come together. Um, and, uh, these are this is what humanity should be doing kind of a thing. So I don't know <clears throat> if you have a, a, a similar take on it, but it just seems like, I mean, you could get there without the psychedelics and everything like that, but it just seems like somebody that just came down from a trip and like wanted to get their shit together and started to write about it or something along those lines. So, no, it's very interesting when I think about trips and how uh, metaphysics comes into play. I mean, yes, you can discover so much more uh, esoteric knowledge, I would say, from psychedelic, phenomenological experiences. But um, just give me a second. I'm yeah, sorry. No problem. No problem. Um, yeah, I think that uh, people are probably sick of... Uh, my take on it but yeah that's just <laughs> that's why they're tuned in man <laughs> um no they're never tuned they're always tuned in for you <laughs> um, let me speak I, apologies my dad was knocking i had to tell um, him to have me in the podcast no no so. no you're, you're good you're good um <clears throat> no i just because i've talked about this a bunch of times but it's like you mentioned the Lucini mysteries and we could talk all day about that but um, you look at Plato participated, Socrates participated, Pythagoras, um, you know, a lot of the 
sages and politicians and even Alcibiades who profaned the Eleusinian mysteries. I think it was, I don't know what, was it 403, 405 BC, somewhere around there, uh, at a dinner party. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you, you look at like the history of these, but I think that when I think of, I've had, uh, I should say this, I had a psilocybin experience where it took me through the history, um, of these things. And it showed like Pythagoras, you know, listening, hearing the interval of a, a blacksmith or, um, uh, you have, you know, Plato participating in the Lucidian mysteries and right there in Eleusis, there's these things called the Plutonian caves, which could easily have been the inspiration behind the allegory of the cave. Um, imagine Pythagoras and Euclid, um, you know, seeing geometric shapes as opposed to just trying to perceive them or think about them in their mind, you know, actually being able to see those shapes that would dramatically alter your perception. So I just look at not necessarily just the Greeks, but you could go all throughout history and were these people being inspired by these experiences, whether they're just altered states of consciousness, deep prayer, meditation, or psychedelic experiences, or whatever, you know, I don't know. What do you think about something along those lines? So, I mean, the first uh, subject, or the first field of study was, of course, natural philosophy. And out of natural philosophy came all of the hard sciences or humanities. Um, and when it comes to Aristotle or Plato or Socrates, um, we gather that if they were participating in Kaikon related cultural festivals, um, you know, it could have had a subjective ex um, influence on them. And they could have maybe ac accumulated that knowledge and maybe applied that into understanding what this entire universe is all about. Um, so there's no no doubt there if they were actually using Kaikon. Um, I would say that, you know, when it comes to understanding metaphysics from an Aristotelian point of view, um, I think there's a lot to unpack there because Aristotle's metaphysics is one of the most hardest book to ever uh, decipher, I would say. Uh, you, you know, personally, when I have only gone through 50 pages and I was already hmm. tripping, <laughs> you know, um, so uh, I would say that, yes, if they were participating in KaiCon, then it could be. And, and I think Brian Moresco is this uh, brilliant guy who wrote this book uh, about all of these illusion mysteries and, and yeah, people we don't really talk. I don't. He. he no, I'm not going to get into it, but. He's not a fan. I don't know if I'd be calling him brilliant. And there was a lot of things taken from other places. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to get into it. But, yeah, there's, you know, some information that came from some other sources that probably should have been um, referenced and uh, added to the bibliography, things of that nature. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have a problem with him personally, but I don't after reading his book and just seeing the hype um there's definitely great research obviously the the physical research of you know taking these chalices and these different uh vases and different things and doing chemical uh, analysis on it and finding ergot and uh different you know different uh psychoactive compounds that's awesome i'm i'm all for that but uh then there's a lot of liberties taken um and uh yeah, then it, 
got into more of the Christianity aspect. I don't know. I just, it was, it's for somebody that's never done a psychedelic. I don't know how you could write that book, but that's just my opinion on it. I mean, the reason why I mentioned him is because. No, I wasn't trying to disappear. I was just pointing that out. Well, let her, let her, let her finish that statement. (laughs) <laughs> no, the reason I mentioned him was because of the book, of course, um, the immortal, the immortality key, maybe. Yeah. Um, that he, you know, does this historical research about how these substances were being used by different cultures back in the day. Um, so you know, it goes to say that if, let's say, Aristotle and Plato were engaging in Kaikon there very well could be that Aristotle's metaphysics was inspired by psychedelics, was mm-hmm. inspired by Kaikon. Now, all of this is just an assumption because we don't know for sure. Um, we're just like abstractly thinking about, you know, what could have been, what could, what possibilities are there for such metaphysics to actually be born. Um, and to me, I feel like if, even if the Kaikon was an actual thing, then, um, you know, Maybe Aristotle's metaphysics, uh, the the study of knowledge, the study or quest for knowledge, um, and and beyond, might have been, you know, induced by a psychedelic kaikonic experience. So you could say that most of the Greek philosophy, if they were, we don't have any proof, of course, but like if we just assert there for a second, we could say that um, all of these. Uh, philosophers of um, Greece were um, taking these psychedelics and were inspired by them and henceforth they were writing about it. Because, you know, when you take something like a lysergamine, or God, right, um, you get these geometrical hallucinations. So maybe Euclidean, uh, you know, uh, geometry could have been born with that. Again, another assertion, which just an assumption. Um, and, and mathematics and and other hard sciences could have also been influenced by tryptamines or lysergamines um, because of their very structured um, components. So, you know, it's all assumptions, but I think if uh, Aristotle and Plato and Socrates were taking Kaikon, it very well could be um, that they could have been influenced by those psychedelic experiences and incorporated it into their own knowledge of what metaphysics is. Now, that's entirely an assumption. Hypothetical. Well, this is the thought experiment I like to throw out there. What in your day-to-day consciousness have you ever experienced that made you feel like how you felt coming down from a psilocybin experience or a trip where it made you want to get your stuff together, be a better person, be a nicer person. And I'm not saying that's the case for everybody because we know psychedelics act as almost like a non-specific amplifier. So it's, it could work the opposite way for somebody that's in a worse mindset or not a great mindset, uh, as it could work wonders for somebody that has good intentions that's going in looking for that extra knowledge or that extra, um, you know, creativity or touch or whatever. So, um, I guess, uh, I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is, um, is what have you ever experienced that would lead you down these insights that these people may have gotten from altered states of consciousness? You know, like, so like my greatest experiences have come from those experiences. The most metaphysical, mystical stuff I've ever experienced have been in those states. 
I've never experienced anything really like that. I've had a few weird synchronicities, but I've never had anything like what I've experienced in the altered states or in moments like those. And I don't know if you feel the same way, but that's just my take. So I would say that I've experienced uh, psychedelic-like states in my day-to-day routine via hypnagogia and hypnopompia. So hypnagogia is this window between sleeping stage and awakening stage. So when I'm in a hypnagogic state, state, there's a couple of things that's happening. One, which is I see a lot of geometry, something like something that life surgery minds also do to you, geometric hallucinations. Um, I tend to see uh, a bunch of spiders just, you know, coming across my visual field that could very well be another hallucination either by lysergamines you can compare it to lysergamines or mushrooms um, and then i also see these things called tetris effects and these tetris effects are essentially what is your short-term memory and long-term memory so imagine like your images are just flashing in front of you so you go all the way back to when you were like six years old and having a candy at a store, you know, and you, you just see mm-hmm. that and then you come back mm-hmm. and then now you see geometry. So I would say that that is the most closest sober psychedelic experience I've, I ever go through on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And I wake up and I feel good about it. Um, it's, it's brilliant. Only, only a very um, few researches have been done uh, on that. There was a guy called Andreas Ma- Mavromatis who did a, his PhD research or thesis on it. Um, and there's an um, academic called George Ellipsy. Um, he is on academia.edu. He wrote about how these lattice patterns work within hypnagogia. There's also Sir Lee Bonham Marcus, who's the who's a teacher professor at University of Texas, and she's also doing research upon hypnagogia and her own subjective experiences. So I would say yes, you know, you can have these sober psychedelic experiences and get so much out of it because you know when I was talking about the Tetris effects and you mentioned phenethylamines before, um, you know, Tetris effects could be compared to 2CB uh, phenethylamine effects because one of the trips uh, I had with 2CB was that I was going back and reliving the memories and coming back mm. uh, to actual reality. So this is something that happens with Tetris effects within hypnagogia as well. So it's very intriguing to understand, you know, what are these complexities within the sober mind, which are able to induce, you know, these hypnagogic or hypnopompic experiences. So that's interesting you say that. I don't know if this is the same thing, but my buddy Lee and I, Lee Adams, who's been on the show uh, more than a few times, he's studied young and all this kind of stuff that we talk about on the show. Uh, but his he experienced this thing that I've experienced, which is either deep in meditation after about 15 minutes or before you fall asleep, you close your eyes without actually falling asleep and you start to get these lights that like dance around. They flutter. Some kind of look like uh, butterflies or fairies, you know, lights like transforming, changing kind of a thing. Uh, Then they, some of them strobe. Um, But I noticed Um, I try and follow them around. It just seems kind of weird. I don't know how to explain it. Um, and I don't know if that's a part of hypnagogia or, um, I think I've asked Rick Strassman. He thought it sounded like, um, 
phosphines, but I, that would be like something having to do more visuals. I mean, my eyes are actually closed and I'm seeing all these patterns and stuff like that. When I get into the pre-sleep, sometimes it happens during or before lucid dreaming and sometimes it happens uh, deep in meditation. So I don't know if, have you ever experienced something like that or heard about something like that? But me and my buddy Lee have for sure been going back and forth. We thought we were the only two people, but slowly we're starting to see more people talk about this. So have you been experiencing hypnagogia specifically or some other kind of, um, well, what would you, cons- what, what's yeah. Like what would you explain hypnagogia? So hypnagogia is a liminal state between wakefulness and sleeping stage. So it's almost like a window. So as uh, as I'm sleeping right now, uh, my eyes are closed and I'm about to sleep. So just before really diving into the unconscious sleeping, there's this window and that is hypnagogia. That is where these visuals come in because you're concentrating on your eyelids. Um, that's what I call hypnagogia. So that, hypnagogia- that might be it, but I also can experience it not trying to fall asleep during deep meditation too. Yes, you can. You definitely okay. can. Yeah. Um, so even I had a conversation with Dr. Rick Strassman about it. In fact, he was the first person I contacted, uh, you know, about hypnagogia. One day I was just sitting and, and smoking some weed and um, and I went to bed and I, and, and I saw these, you know, geometrical hallucinations. At first I thought, was it? was the marijuana laced but it wasn't laced it was hypnagogia mm-hmm. and i did some research on it and i sent an email to maps and they um, gave me a reference to contact dr rick strassman and i uh, contacted him and i was asking him these questions that if we as a subjective entity are able to see these geometrical patterns you know, and I also went on Reddit, by the way, just to see, you know, what kind of um, other subjective experiences people are having with hypnagogia. It seems to me that there are certain objective symbols or sub- certain objective geometry happening within the subjectivity of our own human condition. So I was very fascinated by that. And I was uh, asking Strassman that, um, you know, what if, if we, if we put certain people in fMRI machines and see exactly what kind of brain activity is going on um, in their heads during these hypnagogic experiences, and if they are same across, let's say, 10 subjects, um, then we would be able to see that there are certain objective symbols in the world. Mm-hmm. And these objective symbols could be, you know, arithmetic or geometrical in nature. So it's very, very fascinating. Um, and and even Dr. Rick Strassman, I remember this email exchange from, I don't know, I guess 2018, 2019, 20, maybe. Um, even he was like, you know, saying that if, if I were to be able to be, you know, conducting such experiment, maybe it will lead me to understand what are the objective symbols or what are the objective geometry of the world. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I always think, too, you know, based on when you have these intense psychedelic experiences or you're in these altered states of consciousness, are you maybe perceiving more than what, what meets the eye? You know, like, are you, are you seeing more of what's actually there? The nature of reality is the pareidolia of your built in evolutionary mind and brain kind of being disabled and you're allowed to see more of what's going on. That's something I think about a lot. So I don't know, uh, 
the answer to that, but I do know, I do know in those states, I felt like, you know, it's not just seeing, like, I guess you could use this as an example. So on psilocybin, if you look at a pattern on a wall or a carpet or whatever, it might flow, right? You might do a little wavy action or the patterns might flow into each other. And we know about like superposition and moving molecules and particles and quantum physics and everything like that. Are you experiencing these shifts or these perceptions? Like, are you able to actually sense those things in those states or is that just your mind um, being kind of fooled by this picture of reality that's going on currently? You know, I don't know. Is that something you ever think about? So when it comes to hypnagogy and natural state hallucinations, I think it's it's more visual than anything. I think my prefrontal cortex is very much active during these kind of um, sober state, psychedelic, almost psychedelic-like hypnagogic experiences. Although I don't necessarily think it has any um, sensory uh, element to it. Like I don't really feel them. Like there's no affective or sensory inputs there. Um, it's it's mostly visual, mostly prefrontal cortex kind of experience when it comes to sober uh, hypnagogic experiences. That that's the best way I can describe it. See, I feel like there's a touch of telos or you know some there's purpose in mind uh, to my own perception. That could just be my perception of that. But I feel like when I have those experiences, like as you mentioned, symbols and symbolism. There's things that are happening that maybe it's my mind showing me things I want to see, but then maybe it's not. Maybe it's something external that we don't even know about. That's what I think about, too. Is it the universe? Is it? I don't, I don't even know, you know, um, but uh, those are the things I think about, you know, because I think there's two ways to look at this thing. We're either this is a cosmic accident and we're just here and we're all doing our best and, you know, we're all hallucinating as like a Neil Seth or one of these other um scientists would say or there is some sort of order or purpose or telos and i tend to fall more in lines with that line of thinking i just don't think that this is an accident i don't think that this is i don't think oh I now think, you're coming back to our the good no side. no i'm just saying i i think that you could say that you could say that there's no purpose or purpose is something created by humans or the mind or whatever but I would say that even evolution shows us purpose. It's trying to survive. Like there is an actual objective thing happening, even with the most fundamental aspect of life. So, you know, why have we been given these tools if, um, and again, I'm not hypothesizing or speculating on what it exactly is. Is it the universe experiencing itself? Is there a God? Is there a simulation creator? Is there, I don't know, but I'm just saying, I feel like there is some sort of purpose or, um, and it doesn't have to be, again, it doesn't have to be some sort of like religious purpose, but just some purpose in general. I don't know. I just, I have that feeling at least in my gut. No, it's definitely very interesting because, you know, all of these psychedelic experiences that teach us so many things, um, like I tend to take one psychedelic trip every year and, you know, how there's a lot of research now coming out of um, how psychedelics induce creativity. So you see Alex Gray, right, with his brilliant art. Yeah, amazing, um, yeah. 
amazing amazing stuff um you know in one of my major um high dose experiences of lysergic mines 500 micrograms of lysergic mines um i i saw what i would call an extended dmt trip so i had a huge ego loss moment where for what seemed to me like two hours could have only been one hour because of the time distortion. Um, I saw fractals and patterns and all of these beautiful tunnels and close eye hallucinations. Even when I would open my eyes, I would see the same things. So it usually makes me wonder why are all of these subjective entities who are taking these compounds, seeing these objective Aztec symbols or Hinduistic entities or, you know, any kind of entities which are culturally rooted. And that's where Jung comes in with his collective unconscious, right? Um, Like with his collective unconscious, he's like, yeah, there's within our deep unconscious, there's, uh, uh, um, I would say, similarity within across all subjective entities that we have the same cultural roots the culture and society and religion and mythologies are a part of our collective unconscious and so when we take that and when we try to think about that in a psychedelic uh, perspective it seems like psychedelics kind of unlock that collective unconscious aspect of what Jung was talking about that we do get to see this mythical, you know, archetypes, you know, for Aztec symbols, or Egyptian gods or Hindu deities. It's very, very genuinely interesting. And if everyone is seeing that, then it has to be, it, it, it has to be objective. So we see that there's a lot of complexities within subjectivity. Mm, very interesting. Interesting. Um, let's get to some comments here and hit some of these. Somebody said it's hypnagogia, which, okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> I kind of knew that, but whatever. Um, let's see here. Uh, oh, somebody was asking about Brian Moreski's book. Look, I don't have a specific problem with him, uh, personally, other than some of the research. And then also he, wrote a book on psychedelics and has never done psychedelics. So um, that's kind of a red flag. I don't know if, you know, you can look at the research he did, the hard science and finding the compounds and the chalices and the, um, the different vases and whatever. And that's amazing. Uh, I, I recommend people read his book. I would just say, look into some of these other historians like Chris Bennett or uh, I mentioned, uh, you know, there's there's different people you can look into that have done deeper, better research um, than that book. So I would just point that out. So, again, nothing personal. Uh, I just think that um, I know a lot about these topics. So um, there is a lot of pushback from people in the psychedelic community. So um, let's see here. Um, as far as those symbols go... Um, you know, you mentioned Young and the collective unconscious and symbols and symbolism. Um, so do you think then, let's say you can look at his dream analysis and um, uh, what is it, a man, what does he talk, what, what book is that where they talk about a man and his symbols, something like that. Uh, anyways, 
I've always talked about, but there's a story about he's talking with a, a mountain climber about his dreams and the mountain climber has a dream that he dies up on the mountain, um, you know, uh, alone. So, uh, he talks to young and young's like, well, maybe don't go up alone or whatever. Um, you know, and he keeps having these like reoccurring dreams. So the next time he goes mountain climbing, he brings somebody with him. I guess there was like a close call or something, but they both made it back. Um, and then for whatever reason, this, this guy decided to go up again alone and he actually died up on that mountain. So, um, you could call that maybe like a self-fulfilling prophecy maybe, or maybe it was in the back of his mind and he was going to make more mistakes. Um, he was going to make more mistakes, uh, based on that kind of a thing. Uh, but you could also say that maybe the dreams that this person was having actually did mean something in this reality. And maybe he should have listened kind of a thing. I don't know. What's Mm -hmm. your take on that? When it comes to dreaming, um, it, it, it gets complicated because um, scientifically speaking, dr- dreaming could be um, an assimilation of your short-term memory and long-term memory images. So, and, and, and that's where the symbolism comes in. And, and Salvador Dali does a brilliant job with his Sergius paintings, kind of depicting exactly what happens in these lucid dreams. Um, and so let's say, let's suppose I'm dreaming. Um, and, you know, Jung has a brilliant example of him having a dream about a house where he's going all the way down. And then he remembers, oh, this was the house that, that I used to live in. Um, so symbolism is connected to long-term memory images, while the narrative which is playing within the dream is coming from your short-term memory or something that you've been um, subconsciously or unconsciously thinking about. Uh, unconsciously in the sense that, that unconsciously it's present. Subconsciously in the sense that subconsciously you've been thinking about it here and there, but it's not really conscious. So you take short-term memory, you take long-term memory, long-term memory being the symbolism, short-term memory being the narrative, and all of it constitutes the dream world. Um, now, a lot of people talk about simulation theory and whatnot, that we're all in a simulation. But then there's a bat white argument, which is that if we are in a simulation, the person who is simulating this simulation should be intelligent enough to make sure that we don't question that we are in hmm. a simulation, that we are in a dream world, you know? Right. Um, so I, I, it's, it's, it's a fascinating idea to entertain in your head that uh, if I am seeing symbols in my dream and they do have a signification, like Lacan would say, um, then what, what does this symbol mean? What, why did I have a dream about my teeth falling out, right? Uh, some people say it's anxiety. Uh, it, it, uh, it's a symbolism for anxiety. Um, so, you know, there's always uh, beautiful, beautiful complexities within dream work and dream analysis. Like he, uh, Jung talks about it in depth. Like he, Jung even talked about numerical um, analysis in the sense that if someone dreams about certain certain numbers come in as a symbol, he would just take that and be like, take all of the birth dates of all of his family and see whether the number somehow correlates to that. And if it points to that. So for Jung, it seems like he, he would do a 
uh, a dream analysis um, all throughout all the spheres, not only just including the physiological and the biological and the psychical aspects, but just using all of those three characters all together. Whereas Freud, with his dream analysis, he would say that it's it's short-term memory and long-term memory. But but Jung would go one step further and say that it is also it also has a psychical meaning to it. It also has a mythological, symbolistic kind of essence to it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, what do you think? When you know, when you we're talking about dreams, and uh, you know, you're we're talking about like, is there purpose? Is there you know, do you find these me- meaning and symbols and things like that? Um, I personally think that there's more going on than obviously we can perceive. I think anybody would agree that that's the case, but. I would go as far as to say that um, we know very, 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 very little. Um, so the fact that people seem so bold and confident in their theories of everything or this is all there is or you're a Richard Dawkins type and you've got it all figured out or whatever the case may be, um, I think that we don't know anything. Um, so I think that you know, with this podcast and podcasts like yours, we're just trying to answer these interesting questions from our perspective and knowledge along the way and things like that. But do you ever think that like, um, I don't want to say like, I don't think about this as like a waste of time, but do you ever think that this is almost like a fruitless endeavor because like this road to gnosis or knowledge or whatever is a very tough road. It's like a brutal road in terms of like, um, we will never have the answers. It's almost like it's our job to keep furthering these conversations or pushing this boulder up the mountain for the next person to take over kind of a thing. I mean, how do you think about that? I mean, a lot of people would say that studies into consciousness and uh, an inquiry into the objective T-truth, um, capital T-truth, we cannot ever achieve it. And people who are trying to uh, do an inquiry into it are basically having a career suicide <laughs> because we'll never be able to decode as to what, you know, is happening, right. what is the objective truth and what is, you know, uh, the objective reality, the objective truth. Um, but I think, you know, with neuroscience and artificial intelligence and philosophy and psychology, we're trying to assimilate a multidisciplinary system where we can come closer to understanding what the objective truth is. And the tricky part is that of course, we cannot get the objective t- truth. Uh, Alfred North Whitehead famously said that we know absolutely nothing, and what we know from Western philosophy is just basically Plato's footnotes. Um, so, if you really look at um, objective reality and all of these scientists and, and philosophers and psychologists and neuroscientists and artificial intelligence people coming together trying to understand consciousness and objective truth, um, all they're doing is that they're trying to get closer and closer to understanding exactly what this objective truth is, yet not, a, a, you know, 
ex exactly grasping what this objective truth is. And it all depends on major consensus. Like if you were to search about um, what are the famous uh, consciousness theories online, you know, there would come integrated information theory, simulation theory and, and other consciousness theories. And you would see that there's always a major consensus upon a certain theory and that people think is closer to truth. So, you know, you were saying about uh, reality as a hallucination about under state, right? Um, mm. Let's say a number of people believe that. Then it is closer to getting to decode what a qualia is, what consciousness is. But we never really understand what objective truth is. So the quest for a philosopher, for a scientist, is always a journey towards finding what is closer to the objective truth. Yeah, I don't even know. I mean, I go back and forth, you know, objective truth and free will and determinism. I mean, I think about those regularly. Um, I would say personally, if you look at like, uh, you know, like um, uh, Laplace and his billiard shot, you could look at the universe like that. So like, if there was a God um, or a creator of the simulation or whatever, they would have all the mathematics and geometry and physics. So it would be like a billiard shot. So if you told whatever the top billiards person, you gave them, you know, a neural link or something and they had all the access to all the mathematics, they could tell you where all the billiard balls are going to land on a break. Okay. So you look at the universe like that. And if there was a creator, they would know, they would have all the knowledge of everything. Um, that's there. Uh, so that's the way I look at it. So almost like determinism would be, uh, when I look at like determinism versus free will, free will would be subjective and determinism would be objective based on the human mind. So you think you're experiencing free will and you probably are, but to the universe, you're not. It's just something that's already being played out or already played out. That's just happening kind of a thing. Um, so I don't know. But in terms of like that, in regard to objective reality, I think objective reality, um, I don't know if we can know that. Who's There's a, a scientist, is it Hoffman? I don't know, one of these guys, I think is, that's his last name's Hoffman, where he's got an interesting take where it's like, we can't know what objective reality is. Like we don't have the, the perception or the tools to know what. So what we have is this like, version of reality that's based on evolution and the tools that we needed to get to where we are kind of a thing. So I don't know. It's an interesting topic, but, uh, it's a whole different, uh, that's a that's whole, a whole different can of worms. Yeah. It's a whole different rabbit hole, but I was going to say, let's, let's wrap this up because I wanted to record a Patreon with you, but uh, we'll definitely have you back on in the future. And I will, uh, throw this out there that we are adding you into the documentary as well, which I'm very excited about and looking forward uh, to your take on these things um, for the documentary. And um, yeah, I mean, is there anything else you want to say before we wrap it up? No, nothing. I'm just honored to be on your podcast and the documentary. I had a really brilliant intellectually stimulating conversations with you guys more looking forward to more of these. We really appreciate it, and uh, you're super interesting and intelligent, and I love your takes on things, and I love the guests that you have on your show. Everybody should go check out uh, 
her podcast is called the naked dialogues and it's on Spotify, Apple. Uh, I have the link to her website and her Twitter handle. She's a great follow on Twitter. So if you're on Twitter and you like joining spaces and constant dialogue and stuff, she's always on there. I love reading her stuff and checking her stuff out. So, um, again, the links are down below and we are going to record a Patreon with her right now. So if you're interested, head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast. Uh, for just $2 a month, you'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. Thank you to new Patreon member Kevin. Um, and no, it's not Maurice Kevin. <laughs> and no, it's not Maurice. <laughs> and Kevin also made a very large donation. So thank you very much, Kevin. Uh, we love you and appreciate you and uh, your support. Yeah, Kevin's show. are good dudes. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we're also on Discord. So come find us on Discord if you want to chat. I'm going to try and still do some... Twitter spaces. We did the one for the documentary. Um, we're going to try and do some more. That was fun. We had a lot of people in there. Um, and, uh, if anybody's interested, you can head on over to our merch store. Uh, we have some cool designs. Um, you know, are we living, breathing magic with Anubis holding the, uh, mind escape logo, uh, the Portara of Naxos, uh, lots of cool designs on there. Oh, of course, let Maury speak. Hashtag let Maury speak. Come on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh also head on over to indrasweb.org it is live this is a social media platform we created connect open minds if you want to speculate hypothesize theorize perfect place to do it and one more time i am going to we're going to give away one more mind escape t-shirt i'm picking the winner uh, on the next episode uh for this shirt so uh if you think you'll fit into a large or a medium uh, all you have to do to enter to win is head on over to Spotify, Apple, or um, uh, uh, Google and leave a five-star review, take a screenshot of it, and then send that to mindescapepodcast at gmail.com. That'll enter you to win. Again, I'm going to pick the winner from last month, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll let you know who that is on the next episode. Uh, oh, one more thing. Next Thursday night at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern time, we have Dr. Gregory Little back on the show. Uh, so that should be a fun one discussing his new book, Origins of the Gods. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. Uh, again, one more time, please check out uh, The Naked Dialogue. It's a great podcast, and uh, the links are down below. And, uh, yeah, we are about to start this Patreon and we love everybody and we want you to stay safe out there and we will catch you next time. Peace. Peace. Peace.